Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We begin the show today with breaking news on classified documents found at the Penn Biden Center that should not have been there. It is a problem for Joe Biden, so will the FBI raid his home? Are indictments coming? We aren't holding our collective breaths on the show, but it does seem like a big deal. Then we get into some more news on Biden's border trip as well as his Mexico trip, what's going on in Brazil. There's some widespread child grooming going on in Chicago, more disgusting behavior from Pfizer and other big topics in the opening of the broadcast. Then our guest today is Congresswoman Kat Kamek, who is maybe the coolest person in the Congress, and she breaks down some of the details of the speaker negotiations. She's pretty hardcore on policy and still backed Kevin McCarthy all the way through, and she explains why. And I do think it's pretty essential listening, so you'll want to check it out. All that's come. Let's get into it. So the hottest thing going on right now is that Joe Biden allegedly left classified documents in an old office. Can you imagine this? That the president of the United States would be careless with classified documents, seemingly impossible. How could a president ever have documents that weren't exactly where the government or the Secret Service or... MSNBC or CNN or New York Times advise them to keep their documents. Well, Attorney General Merrick Garland is now in the hot seat because he assigned a U.S. attorney to review the roughly 10 classified documents that were found in old office of President Joe Biden, according to CBS. They reported this on Monday. And the classified documents are from Biden's vice presidential office at the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement in Washington, which is within close proximity to Capitol Hill. But the Penn-Biden Center is a division of the University of Pennsylvania. And I will tell you that it is a uh, something that we, you will hear about quite a bit. And I will tell you why you will hear about it quite a bit, because I'm doing some research specifically in the Penn-Biden Center. And there's some stuff that's going on over there that is uh, not above board. And um, this will be some stuff that I will roll out this year, but I'm not stunned to note that there are some classified documents that were fi- found there. And Biden's personal attorneys um, have been saying for the last few days, allegedly, that the uh, that they're cooperating with the National Archives and Department of Justice regarding discovery would appear to be Obama-Biden administration records that have been housed there that are not supposed to be there. So uh, this is a big deal because we were told that the worst thing in the world is to have documents, if you're president, that are not exactly where the National Archives want them to be. So uh, this is, uh, they were voluntarily turned over to the authorities and um, the, the MAGA crowd is naturally demanding that Joe Biden's home, Joe Biden's office, Joe Biden's doghouse, Joe Biden's kid's house, Joe Biden's uh, ice cream stand all get raided because that's what we endure with President Trump. President Trump had some documents. We don't know what's in the documents. 
we presume it's either not a big deal or something that Trump could have made uh, unclassified with a moment, with the signature, with a wave of his magic wand. All of those could have been done. And now we're anticipating that President Trump gets indicted. Literally, we're on indictment watch. Day 321, or whatever it is, of indictment watch, President Trump, because of his handling of documents. And we believe that that could happen, is likely to happen. And yet now we learn that Joe Biden had documents he was not supposed to have at the Penn Biden Center, an office that he maintained from the Obama-Biden year. So how long have they been there? At this think tank where Biden allegedly worked, and who even knows if he worked there? He might have just been collecting a check so they could call something the Penn Biden Center. And who even knows if Biden himself could declassify these documents because he was vice president, not president, when the documents in question were made part of the public record. So all of it is noteworthy because we will see how this plays out and we will also see how it plays out in relation to Biden who's thinking about announcing for a presidential run for 2024 which we believe he will announce and we believe when he announces he will inevitably be the front runner given the strange way we conduct elections in this country which heavily favor Democrats because of their institutions that have made it so that they are able to manipulate information that people read online and then they are able to manipulate the mechanics of our elections via our, our vote-by-mail system, which are referred to as cheat-by-mail. Um, Biden, who's an octogenarian. And in the meantime, he stands accused of doing the exact same thing of the main gripe people have with Trump right now. Not to say there aren't a million gripes with Trump, but the main gripe with Trump is what? He was withholding documents he should not have been holding at Mar-a-Lago, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I say et cetera because does it really matter? The main thing is get the bad orange man, protect the man with the Corvette and the hair plugs. And the nice suits. I'll say something nice about Biden. Get nice suits. Joe Biden scolded Donald Trump as irresponsible for keeping documents at Mar-a-Lago. Amazing. Yet Biden keeps documents at the Penn Biden Center. Why would he do that? They're not even his documents. They were Trump's documents. The documents at Mar-a-Lago were Donald J. Trump's. He was president. He could declassify them. He could do whatever he wanted with them. He could wipe his nose with them. Whatever he wanted to do. He could mop up the floor. He could practice his calligraphy transcribing them. Whatever he wants to do, he could do it. Those were not Biden's documents. Those were the people's documents or Barack Obama's documents. And yet, there they are, Penn Biden Center, a corrupt place, as you will learn over the next year when I'm able to unveil uh, what I've been digging into about that place. Even CNN was acknowledging this looks terrible. It's a political gift to Trump, and especially because whatever indictment might take place of Trump hasn't even come out yet. Merrick Garland had had a tough night yesterday because he's been biding, biding his time, biding his time, get it, Biden, 
thinking about whether or not he's going to indict Donald Trump, who's running for president, and what that will mean for a country, a republic. And now we have this, where Joe Biden did the same stuff. Um, if you're paying attention to this show, if you read Breitbart on a daily basis, if you follow the handful of right-of-center outlets who try to tell you the truth every day, then none of this will shock you. Um, but if you are somehow crawling out from under a rock where you're under the impression that the President of the United States behaves by the marquee of Queensberry's rules, then uh, this will be stunning information that Joe Biden, the steward of our republic, the person who knows more about decorum and how to behave as a public figure than any person in this country, considering it has been 50 years since he got to Washington, that he does not know how to handle classified documents. Or if he does know, then he's hiding them, which is even worse. But you all know that Biden's not a good guy. And he's a dishonest guy. And he's a dangerous guy. He's the type of guy who was a White House who would have pressured Facebook to censor Tucker Carlson, a opinion host on Fox News. Very popular, very powerful. But he's a leader of the free world. And he wants a tech company that originated as a website to rate women. Not even women, girls. Pressured that company to censor Tucker Carlson, as we learned yesterday. Um, Jeff Landry, who is the Attorney General of Louisiana, one of the most interesting and, I think, um, I would say important legal minds in the country at the moment, have filed a censorship lawsuit against the U.S. government. He believes this is a bipartisan effort showing that the federal government at this moment will censor you if they don't like your opinion on things. And he cited a specific example where Joe Biden attempted to silence in Joe Biden's administration Tucker Carlson via Facebook. And he gave other examples, but that was the main one. In the meantime, what's Biden up to? He told the Salvation Army or an official of the Salvation Army that he spent time with the Secret Service in Poland and Ukraine. He thought he was talking to a Secret Service person. He was not. He was talking to someone from the Salvation Army. And then he was probably telling a falsehood. They spent time with the Secret Service in Poland and Ukraine. Was this him saying he was part of it, as in, like, he's a Secret Service guy? Or is this him saying, I mean, he's had Secret Service protection for a really long time, probably. I'm guessing at least a decade and a half. Maybe longer. So what does this mean? He spent time with the Secret Service in Poland and Ukraine, which is what was said. Very odd. You should see this at Breitbart.com. It's one of these moments where, even if you're not a Joe Biden fan, and if you're listening to the show, Conservative Talk Radio, on a frigid January morning at 6 a.m., I'm guessing you're not. But if you are uh, a Joe Biden fan, I, I would like to understand how you felt about this 
situation where he walks over and starts talking to the Salvation Army about the Secret Service. Seems very disturbing. All right, other non-Biden-related news. I'm trying my best to try to articulate to you some of the good news from the Speaker of the House debate. We spent a fair bit of time on yesterday's broadcast doing this, and I've got some more good news that Jim Jordan is going to chair a subcommittee probing into the politicization of the FBI. This is one of the stories of our time, um, is that the deep state and the FBI, the face of it, has shifted their focus from being weaponized on behalf of the American public, trying to understand the bad guys and fight them back on a world stage, and instead has made their main priority to investigate and come after the good guys in this country. That is not their mandate. That is not their responsibility. And they've done this largely unchecked. Now, one of the most important and successful investigators in the country is Jim Jordan. Um, Jim Jordan is congressman who has a track record in this regard. And he will be in charge of an investigation into not just the FBI, but the DOJ, Homeland Security, other executive branches. And his endeavor will be to obtain information that will hopefully help us understand those agencies' efforts to look into private sector, nonprofits, etc., even government agencies that are working against individuals or operations within those entities that are working against the American people. So he's going to have huge investigatory powers. He's going to have huge access to information. And this is all because of the House of Representatives is switching hands. So likely we're going to see a panel of 13 members or so, which will include five Democrats, which will be fun. I like that. We're probably going to get some good audio, good clips, good news for you. But the main thing is Jim Jordan's going to get to do his thing. And let's see what he finds. Because I do have faith that if there's some bad stuff, some stones to overturn, he'll find them. We have another story for you at Redbird.com that we published yesterday by Sean Moran, who covers Washington for us, that I would recommend to all of you, where it breaks down all of the most important changes to the Congress, and a lot of them are rules-related. I went through some of them at the top of the show yesterday, if you get the show on podcast or on the SXM app. Um, but it goes through a lot of the things that are different in the House this year now that the Republicans have taken over the Congress. And a lot of this includes things like the House releasing legislation 72 hours prior to voting on a bill, which is, you know, seems like a bare minimum. Um, and all of these resolutions and all of these rule changes, particularly on budget issues, and particularly considering conservative bills that you'll want to be aware of. Another example is immediately they're putting forward a bill to rescind the tens of billions of dollars provided to the IRS to hire 87,000 new agents under the Inflation Reduction Act, which is terrific. Another bill is going to block the Secretary of Energy 
from sending petroleum from strategic petroleum reserves to China, which really did happen. Stunning stuff. I was just reviewing some news reports on this, but uh, just amazing we did this. In a hugely inflationary moment, in a moment we are at a deep divide with China, Joe Biden tapped our strategic petroleum reserves and sent a bunch of it to China. China Joe, a guy who has gotten rich from China, a guy who's cutting so many deals, cutting. Is that a word? It is not a word. <laughs> He's cut so many deals with China ever since he was vice president. And he was largely in charge of the China portfolio when he was. And has deep family ties to China, as Peter Schweitzer has documented over and over again. And he tapped our strategic petroleum reserves. The reserves we were supposed to use, in it is a break glass in case of emergency. And he sent some of it to China. And naturally, the Republicans are putting a bill forward right away saying, hey, can't do this anymore. We're done. Um, they're also looking at the way we handle omnibus bills and trying to make it so that we don't spend money on stuff that's a single issue. Again, that one sounds too good to be true. Bill prohibiting taxpayer-funded abortion, a bill to amend Title 18, which prohibits a um, health care practitioner from failing to exercise the proper degree of care in the case of a child who survives an abortion or attempted abortion. All very productive. Makes you happy. So, and that is just a fraction of the new stuff. So, again, we've got a real chance here especially those of you, and I know that's most of the audience, who are on, side, on the side of the people who like the idea that the House of Representatives was held up for a bit to sort out the leadership battle. And um, I think I highlighted sufficiently the cringy elements of all of it. But overall, some things are different today than they would have been a few days ago. And let's see what happens. Let's see how things get executed. So the House passed a rule package yesterday which formalized all of the agreements that we've been discussing on the show and um, you can read about Breitbart.com and they look pretty good. I gotta say, it does look better. It does look better than I would have anticipated. All right, uh, so Joe Biden went to the border and uh, Texas Governor, Governor Abbott, uh, handed him a letter. The letter was scathing. And the details of the letter were made public about how the border is open. I will say that Joe Biden has had uh, several debacles as president. And he's had other issues where he's done very badly. But there are a couple of things he's done which he's done impossibly badly. Uh, number one being the withdrawal of Afghanistan from Afghanistan. And number two has been the way he's conducted himself at the border. And it's at the point where it's hard to articulate just how bad things have gotten under Biden. And part of the reason why it's hard to articulate is because a lot of the people who are benefiting from his uh, misbegotten border policy are the same people who've benefited from bad border policy from prior presidencies. It's the cartels. It is China. It is, of course, legal aliens themselves. It is the big corporations in the United States. 
communities in the United States um, are the ones who've been devastated. They've had people in their lives die from fentanyl overdoses or get severely injured or get addicted. They are the ones who've had their wages uh, being driven down by an influx in human beings who are coming to compete for their jobs. They've lost jobs. All that's happening, not to mention those of the personnel on the border who are in charge of sort of this fake border that we have now, where they have to deal with processing all these individuals who are only coming here because they know it's, it's open and they have an opportunity to try sneak into our country. It's a tale as old as time, saying goes. So, what else is a governor of Texas to do? Gives him a letter, got some stuff in it, calling on Biden to try to do something different, enumerate what his priorities are, including Title 42, uh, including Remain in Mexico, including prosecuting illegal aliens who are entering between our ports of entry, including finishing the wall, including designating Mexican cartels as terrorist organizations. All of that's in Abbott's letter, which is really great. That said, will Biden do any of it? No, 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 he will not. Because he's gotten away thus far, which leaving things the way they are. Makes me very sad, but it's true. All right, um, biggest item of the day yesterday was probably the riots going on in Brazil. We touched on this briefly on yesterday's show. It led to 1,500 arrests, dozens of injuries, six in critical condition. Uh, this is, as far as I can tell, in no way related to January the 6th. It is no way related to people who are you know, trying to storm the Capitol, trying to be insurrectionists. But it is a people who are unhappy with Brazil uh, in the election of Lula da Silva, who is a convict and is a socialist and deposing Jair Bolsonaro, who is more conservative and has a lot of good values. He's got some bad values, too, but a lot of good values. And, you know, survived an assassination attempt. Um, but one thing that's interesting is how the media was so quick to connect this to Trump January the 6th. Uh, I mentioned it briefly because I knew the media would do this. But overall, uh, Brazil has had widespread demonstrations throughout time, long before Trump was even on the picture. So, and it was a very tight race. And the Supreme Court of Brazil is seen as a left-wing institution that has their own political agenda from the left. And that was what they stormed. So it's very interesting that inevitably, and I knew this would happen, I said so on the show yesterday, that the media would take this as some sort of a connection January the 6th. <laughs> There's no real connection. Other than that, Trump is occasionally known, uh, I'm sorry, Bolsonaro's Trump of the tropics. But Bolsonaro's in Florida. And he's seen some doctors here because America, despite what you read on Twitter, still has the best medical um, community. Should we say community? The best medicine in the world. 
So he's in Florida because he's not president, doesn't have a lot of responsibilities now, doesn't really have any as far as I can tell. And I, as I knew on yesterday's broadcast, a few days ago, he was spotted in a Publix uh, grocery store, one of the best grocery stores in the world. I have to say, anyone who's been to a Publix knows the pleasure shopping at, at Publix. And those of us who don't live in a state with Publix wishes Publix was around. It really is. It's very, quite pleasurable. If you have the opportunity, I would recommend it. Um, and he was watering around buying groceries. Um, he has had some severe health complications because he was nearly assassinated in 2018. Nearly assassinated. He wasn't just um, stabbed. He was stabbed multiple times in his gut. Just making his intestines like cornflakes that had to be reassembled. And that is some really significant complications. Life-threatening illnesses or injuries that resurface. So he's in Florida seeing doctors, and yet it will be portrayed as though he is the bad guy. And to be honest with you, I don't know if he is um, connected at all to what's going on. I, I imagine that this is just sort of routine. But it is not 100% certain that it is there's a possibility that this is just you know simply um the more organized than it looks but it does seem like this happens in brazil uh, often so he is long wondered and we've documented this breitbart news naturally that he could be sent to prison if he does not win the election and uh, the fact that the united states openly fantasizes about imprisoning the last president of the United States because he lost an election is uh, that we transport that around the world because we're seen as the uh, the city upon a hill. So the city upon a hill starts indicting people, trying to arrest people for simply losing an election. Uh, you can you better believe the rest of the world is going to follow that. But there's always been significant drama, legally speaking. Uh, in Brazil, where you've got a public that is so often conservative, but you've got a court system that is largely an instrument of the left. And that's what we've seen. All right, 866-95-PATRIOT if you would like to be a part of the broadcast. A few other items at Brightport News that I will throw out to you before I begin to take your calls. We have a big chunk of time to take your calls, so please, by all means... Join us. Um, uh, Twitter employees who are going to who are being fired by Elon Musk are receiving a smaller severance payment than they were promised, and that is hilarious and highly enjoyable. Perhaps dishonest by Musk, but uh, they are as as we're well aware, thousands and thousands of Twitter employees are getting laid off uh, with the new management that's moved in, and they were told they're going to get a certain amount of money, and they're not going to get it, and that's great because Twitter's been a terrible place it still is a terrible place but though slightly less terrible under Musk's leadership and that's so funny to me and uh it couldn't have happened to worse people the twitter files which continue to get leaked out in most of it doesn't get tons and tons of attention on the latest round got reported and this came out yesterday by alex berenson who is a uh, reporter very anti-establishment not a right-winger per se, but became a journalist tracking a lot of the stuff that was going on with coronavirus, eventually vaccines. He was thrown off of Twitter temporarily. 
he reports a lot of stuff that is accurate. A lot of stuff that's very wacky, to be honest with you. Uh, but in his latest report from the uh, Twitter internal documents that were fed to him, the uh, a Pfizer board member, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, pressured the company to censor Donald Trump's uh, FDA commissioner. Which is interesting because Scott Gottlieb was generally pretty good as far as public commentators um, on the coronavirus, even though he was a uh, on the board of directors for Pfizer. And he was the FDA commissioner under Trump. One of the more reasonable people in terms of people in the uh, public health field who were public commentators. And he had pressured Twitter, allegedly, to suppress a tweet from Dr. Brett Giroir, who was the acting commissioner of the FDA under Trump after Gottlieb. It's just so wild that even amongst the more credible people within our government in the medical world, that uh, and a guy who immediately went to Pfizer's board, made a bunch of money for Pfizer, that this is the posture they take, is that let's censor the people who disagree with us on coronavirus issues. It is anti-science. Science is constantly being tested. Science is not settled. That's the whole trick of science. One of the most toxic and dangerous phrases that we heard was that the science is settled with regards to climate change. Science is not settled. And creating that concept that the science can ever be settled is... Um, just just very, very dangerous. The nature of scientific inquiry is that you challenge your hypotheses over and over and over and over. And if something's out there on Twitter that is not the role of the government, not the role of government scientists, is not the role of big pharmaceutical industry scientists to say, hey, we can't have this. Let it ride and you can beat the ideas in the marketplace of ideas. That's how you do it in a society of free speech. There's, I can't think of another country in the world, and there's almost 200 countries or over 200 countries, depending on how you're counting it, about 200 countries, how about that, that has a constitution that is as wonderful as ours. So until someone introduces a better version of a founding documents to govern a society, I would like to abide by the First Amendment. And that is a responsibility that is shared by all of us. It's not just government. Legally speaking, sure, it's government. But it is, in this case, of course, we're talking about the government. But overall, the First Amendment is precious. We need to defend it. Uh, and not just from a legal perspective, from a philosophical perspective. That you allow people to speak their mind, and then you can beat them if your ideas are better and you articulate it better, and you argue better. Most interesting story we had up yesterday was a nice catch by Robert Krejcik, who typically writes up what happens on this show for us, Breitbart News. This is his main task for us. But he caught a interview with Yuval Noah Harari, who also came up on yesterday's broadcast. As if you could listen for all three hours when the callers brought him up. He is a, who I consider the brain of Davos. He is Klaus Schwab's right-hand man for the World Economic Forum, and I believe the scariest human being on the planet. Uh, and he was opining on where he thinks the future will go from here. 
and how humans are going to have to relearn how to see and walk in the virtual reality that we are heading towards. The uh, essentially hybrid of reality and virtual reality that we're heading towards. He believes that humans may have to leave our biological bodies behind and shift to the immaterial realm of the metaverse. Is that the creepiest thing you've ever heard? That our, our realities will not be physical. Our realities will be with our headsets and it'll be uh, something we experience completely between our ears. Nothing you can touch. You can see it through your virtual reality goggles. Nothing you can smell, nothing you can taste. All of it is going to be through our headsets. And it's all going to be controlled by big tech geniuses, the elite of the elite, and those who are their financiers. Typically those in the World Economic Forum. And they're opining about this openly. And we note this because we're heading towards another Davos Summit, World Economic Forum, where the elite of the elite get together to plot your future. Your future where you eat bugs, and synthetic meat, and you are controlled by unelected bureaucrats like this freak. Keep an eye on it. Very, very important. A couple other quick ones before we go to the phones. Hundreds of Chicago teachers raped and sexually assaulted and groomed students in 2022. Uh, it's very tough to live in our major school districts right now in our big cities. A report released by the Chicago Public Schools Office of the Inspector General showed that in the 2021-2022 school year, 772 investigations of teachers for allegedly raping and sexually assaulting or grooming students were conducted, and that 600 adult-on-student cases in the, pa- in the past year were substantiated. Um, I'm sorry, so uh, half of those were substantiated. So, and only of those, so they had 772 instances, 600 cases, half of those are substantiated, but check this out, only 16 thus far have resulted in charges. Now, the legal system's slow, it's cumbersome, it's plodding, but they're groomers within our midst, in our school systems, and they get worse the bigger the school system. And, of course, when the school systems are run by the, the uh, one party. And it eventually becomes a, a feeder system into Democrat politics. And uh, Democrat finances are deeply intertwined. Democrat votes are deeply intertwined with the way these school systems work. So we've got lots of groomers preying on our children. And what are we doing about it? Nothing. Because the people in charge in a lot of those areas have the same political ambitions. Congresswoman Kat Kamek is here. I always like when she's on. She's articulate and she's fun. Uh, she also, I think, mostly has the right politics. Uh, it's noteworthy that she was not one of the 
the 20 people who objected to Kevin McCarthy uh, as the speaker. And she kind of breaks down what she thinks those 20 got out of the negotiations, which she also knows were not all that long or uh, all that uncomfortable for most people, though I do get her take on some of the meltdowns that took place uh, within the Congress. But what's noteworthy in the interview that we didn't have any time for agenda. We didn't actually talk about what the Republicans are doing in the Congress because I need to spend the time trying to understand what the Congress was doing to each other. So uh, just something to keep in mind. I'm not evaluating that in a positive or negative sense, but it's noteworthy that that's what occurs in the interview. It's basically a breakdown of the you know insidery drama in the Congress. But I still think it's really important to hear. That's why she's our guest for the day. Let's listen. All right, Congresswoman Kat Kamick is on from Florida's 3rd District. Great to have you back on the broadcast, Congresswoman. Uh, and I want to get first your thoughts on what's going on with the Congress and the new speakership and most importantly, the debate that took place last week that we all witnessed and was kind of, uh, I think, somewhat painful to witness in real time, but maybe the end result is good. Uh, but I want to get your thoughts from the floor. First of all, you were backing Kevin McCarthy the whole time. Uh, what was your take on those who were not and what they were asking for and why you were where you were and did your position evolve at all over the course of the week? <laughs> well, good morning, Alex. That is a, a long series of questions, so I'll try to answer each one. Um, but, you know, last week, absolutely messy, um, uncomfortable for a lot of people, um, was it the way that we envisioned getting the 118th started? No. Uh, but I do think at the end of the day, there was some really good dialogue in the middle and sometimes hidden deep down underneath all of the political rhetoric. Um, but, you know, my reason for supporting McCarthy is a couple of reasons. One, for the last, I would say, eight weeks, 12 weeks, there had been a really good and and quite frankly the first time that i had seen anything like it uh, a conversation but also a debate and a a vote on a litany of different things that needed to change in the rules package um, starting after the election we all sat down as a conference not once not twice but three times to go through each one of these amendments to the rules package and if you look back to the start of the 117th congress when i came in i felt a little bit alone because I was I was out there talking about the fact that Nancy Pelosi had done things like remove a supermajority to uh, increase taxes. She had basically gutted longstanding provisions that gave minority the minority a way to actually function up in Congress. But more than that, she had taken a rules package and weaponized it against her own conference. And so Back in the beginning of the 117th, so two years ago, I was pretty angry about the rules package. And even last summer was talking with Michael Cloud about, hey, I think there need to be some fundamental changes. So when we saw that process play out where we had things by December that were ending proxy voting, which, by the way, I've never proxy voted, um, getting rid of remote committee business, pushing for single issue bills, uh, restoring cut go instead of pay go requiring a three-fifths majority for tax increases, the 72-hour to read the bills. Heck, I was, I was testifying before the Rules Committee on November 29th 
about single issue bills and 72 hours to to read the bills. Things there's there's a litany of things in the rules package, but the point is is that as of January 1 at 8:38 p.m., we had a rules package that really reflected the work of the body as a whole and it was the most conservative shift back towards empowering members that I had ever seen. And so my frustration last week was okay, if there's more that needs to be done, work in good faith to do it. Instead, what I saw, and, and I saw it because I was getting the text messages and the emails, was a handful of members that were working in good faith towards some more conservative wins that weren't related to the rules package because what people failed to realize is that there was only one change last week to the rules package, just one, and it was the motion to vacate down to a single member from five. And I'm fine with that. But was an entire week of fighting and 15 ballots worth that? I don't know. Um, when you have such a slim majority in the House, I think that you have to be careful in what you're doing in terms of giving the other side uh, a means to basically hamstring you. And so that's the only change that happened last week. That is the only thing that is in paper, on paper, in writing, was that the motion to vacate went from five to one. Now, of course, there were backroom deals that were supposedly cut, and I have a problem with the fact that if we're up here trying to change the way that Washington functions, are you going to engage in the same behavior that you're accusing others of? I don't know. No one really knows what was in the deal um, because some say that the deal doesn't exist. Some say that it's on paper. Others say that it's not. The only thing that people can say that is truth and fact is that there was one change to the rules package that came out of last week's speakership fight. And like I said, that was the motion to vacate from five to one. Um, I think that a lot of my colleagues that were opposed to McCarthy, they, they did it on principle, you know, and I, I had great conversations with them. I think they wanted to get more conservative wins out of it. Um, and, and I respect them for that. The, the, where I have a problem is when people use it for personal gain and for fundraising. And that, to me, is just not a sign of good faith. And it screams to me the same behavior that so many have accused the swamp up here of engaging in. And if we're serious about draining it instead of swimming in it, let's put light on it. Let's put the deals out in the open. Let's operate in good faith. Do it in a transparent manner that everyone can be a part of. And so it was frustrating, but I said in the beginning of last week, we would be better for having gone through a process where we were actually debating, where we were actually in the same room. And what people saw, not just us here on the floor and in Congress, but the world, they saw us on the floor debating. And now is the time that we really have to get it together because we have too many important issues that we've got to tackle. And if we're not united, we won't be successful in taking back the country and then teeing things up for a 24 run for both the Senate and the, and the White House. Um, I think to your point about how there was very limited changes actually accomplished, I, I think that's that's pretty valid, and it's not really that viewpoint is not being aired, I think, a lot. I also thought it was very curious from my vantage point how uh, there was some deeply uh, passionate uh, people who were coming out against Kevin McCarthy, but there was no one offered up as an alternative. And in the meantime, some of the same people were fundraising off of the chaos, which I, I found incredibly off-putting. Uh, and I mentioned this a number of times on the show. I, I, I do want to ask about the one thing that I'm totally 
uh, unclear on is why is it such a big deal to change the motion to vacate the chair from five votes to one vote? I feel like if you want to vacate the chair, you can't get five people to agree with you. Like, this to me was presented as one of the top issues for the 20 mm -hmm. people who were the holdouts. Like, I, and I didn't, I never understood it. I know that this was not clearly super important to you, obviously, but what, do you understand it? Did anyone make the case to you that this was really a big improvement? Over the, why can't you just get five people? That just sounds fine. Like five sounds a good number. Well, and and you and I are in agreement on that. I I really couldn't understand why the five to one was so important. Um, I kept getting presented a historical um, argument. You know, oh, this was a Jefferson rule, and we need to restore it back to it. And I said, okay. I mean. That kind of goes into this whole narrative of, you know, it's been done this way forever, so we got to keep doing it this way. I, I just, I don't know if, if that was exactly the strongest argument to be used by that. Um, one thing that I did find was that, um, as I was talking to colleagues, um, they, they kept saying things that it was a, mo a constantly moving goalpost. You know, at first it was, oh, well, we want reassurances that, you know, this rule won't be waived. And I said, well, you have a five vote trigger. I could find five people right now to, you know, vote for that or vote for this or, you know, stand together. You know, that's, that's part of the dynamics of, of this institution is you, you have people that come together on principle, right? And you can work together to move things. And if five is your threshold, I mean, that's not really that that's not a whole heck of a lot of people. So, you know, the notion of, oh, we were holding out or we were ne we negotiated a deal that reinforces this or X or Y or Z, I kept saying, well, you have a five-vote trigger to take down this rule if someone tries to waive it. And so that, to me, just wasn't a very sound argument. And then, like I said, on the motion to vacate, um, I, I reinforced that. I said, you know, if Kevin's not doing his job, just like in any other yeah. profession in the world, you know, your boss has to be accountable. And especially in this place, we work for the people. We work for our constituents back home. And if people aren't happy, that is going to be reflected in the membership. And the membership can very easily, five of us, and I can tell you I had 10, 12 members um, that I spoke to just yesterday that were still really frustrated about how everything went down. Um, and and they said, you know, I just it doesn't seem like that a lot of this was done in good faith. And again, the fundraising component, I think, is really what um, undercut yeah. the purity of what it, it certainly did. And, and 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 some of the TV stuff, like I get it that there was no way to get the word out without going on TV and stuff. But there was clearly just a certain level of peacocking that was just just a, a high, highly off putting from my vantage point. But again. Um, you know, things are what they are. And I, I don't really know how you're going to get the word out uh, not without going on TV, but it was still, uh, some of these things are just uh, rub you the wrong way. Um, but there are some improvements that did take place. Uh, we got this committee to investigate the deep state and Jim Jordan's going to head that up. That sounds really yeah. great. Um, we're talking about appropriations bills that will mm -hmm. have um, a, a single issue, which uh, I want your take on that specifically, Congresswoman, because that seems almost too good to be true. Like I, it just, that's just not the Washington that I know of. Um, I would love it uh, <laughs> if that, if that's, how it turns out it just seems like um not going to happen so it's the um i definitely want your your thoughts on that one uh, it seems like there's going to be some more conservatives and some key committees it seems like an improvement but uh, let's go to that issue with uh, how could 
how could Washington's going to grind to a halt if we only have single issues for when we're spending money? And I, I, again, I, I would love it. There's if I had a genie in a bottle and I could have three wishes, I would wish for this one issue. Like, this would be one of my top three in life, and I still don't believe it's going to happen. Um, but what are the mechanics of this? Well, there's this is where it kind of gets a little bit messy because obviously within the rules package, it didn't include things like promises on certain bills, right? So. You know, there was a lot of talk about a balanced budget amendment or a term limit vote, and that's not included in the rules package. So for all the talk and, and, and bluster out there about we got this, we got that, well, it's not, it's not in writing. Like, that wasn't part of the rules package. So while I 100 percent support us voting on those issues and will support those issues, um, I think that there's a little bit of a gray zone where, uh, you know, we're not exactly sure what has been committed to and what hasn't. What I can tell you on the single-issue bills And like I said, there's that five-vote trigger if anyone tries to waive that rule. But it also puts the onus on the member that is introducing that bill or that package. They have to go and justify that this is, in fact, just a single-issue bill. And then on the appropriation side, I thought it was fascinating. You know, we're only going to do appropriations that comply within the budget resolution, which is obviously very needed. Um, but the thing that I found helpful, and I'm curious to see how it's going to work. I'm not quite sure how it's going to work, but they're going to advance a CR with every appropriation bill to take the government shutdown um, off the table, which as conservatives we've seen throughout the last 10 years where that has been a political football most times. But there's also been times where it's been um, effective when we can overcome, you know, the false narrative that the left puts out of, oh, you know, if you shut the government down, Social Security checks stop and all that, that's the fear-mongering game they play. Sure. This would take that off the table for everyone. And so I'm, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work, but they're going to advance a CR in advance of September 30th so that it, that it can't be used in that way, which at that point they're saying you have to, on the Appropriations Committee, get all of your, your work done. I will be watching to see if that actually happens. I'm not on the appropriations committee, but that's going to be that remains to be seen if if they can actually deliver on that. Um, I know there was concerns about the budgetary conversations. And again, I'm using air quotes because there's not been anything put on paper. Um, So we don't exactly really know what has been agreed to. But I know there's been concern about cutting defense spending. And what does that look like with budget caps? Um, you know, no debt uh, increase on the, um, I think that was the Gephardt rule or the Homan rule. I think it was um, the Gephardt rule. So uh, it, it takes out the automatic raising of the debt ceiling when we pass a budget. Yeah, That's going to be, I think, important. That actually is in the rules package. Another thing that was in the rules package was the Holman rule, which I think that ability for us to go in and single out accounts and basically eliminate positions, that's how we actually get to the crux of how we drain. I like that. How you go after unelected bureaucrats. That's going to be the interesting thing. I'll be 100% honest. I just, I don't know because, again, there was some backroom deals that we weren't privy to. Um, And so whether or not that comes to light, we're not sure. I've heard people talk about it. I've talked to my colleagues about it. Um, But... The only thing that I can ever count on in this town is what's in black and white. And until it's in writing, it's, to me, it's just not a done deal. 
What was it like on the floor during some of this? I mean, we saw some like fits of peak and emotion that were just, again, very, very odd. Uh, Members restraining Mike Rogers from going after Matt Gates on the floor. Uh, It's been pretty much a cliche and talk radio talk about Dan Crenshaw's meltdowns that were just constant. I I, I don't, and uh, Congressman Crenshaw has been on the show a number of times. Um, I've always got along with him okay, even though I don't think I share a lot of his politics, but it just is very odd that this was um, the, the, that this was, people were so freaked out over this. It seemed, um, I I totally get that this could age poorly, that this fight took place and it might not be, have been worth it, but still odd to see grown men just completely melt down in public over something like this. Uh, What was it like being there? Um, I think that there was a lot of, um, members that felt that they were being targeted. Um, I can't tell you how many, and I excuse the term rank and file. Um, uh, so many of my colleagues who represent very conservative districts who are very conservative individuals, um, you know, and, and I never go, I never, you know, talk about scorecards because I think voting for a scorecard is silly, but, um, you know, if you were to go and look at their records, they their work in Congress reflects a very conservative individual um, that is serious about small government and, you know, restoring power to the people. They I, I heard conversations, had conversations with them where these people were saying, I am being made out to be a moderate. And that is not true. And people recognize that they're seizing a moment as an opportunist um, to, you know, this moment is an opportunity for them to, you know, try to paint me in a certain way or paint our conference or members of our conference a certain way. And that's not accurate. So there was a lot of people feeling like, you know, I'm being used at the expense of someone's campaign coffers. And so that was problematic. Um, It wasn't helpful that as we're sitting on the floor and, you know, tensions are getting high, that people are receiving fundraising text messages and, you know, fundraising emails that did not help at all. Um, So there was, I can tell you, there was a lot of conversations where um, you have a new group of people coming in, the the freshmen, and they're asking a lot of questions. And so I I was really kind of working the floor talking about, okay, this is how this actually works. This is what is being said, but this is actually the process. And I think process is so important for people to understand. Because we live in this world now where all of a sudden Twitter has become the de facto means to get information, whether it's true or not. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not actually true because that's not even how the process works, right? You know, and I talk to people about that. And so I think in the end, and I, and I still stand by my comments, I do think that we will be better for having gone through this now at the beginning. Um, because I think for a long time, Republicans have had an identity crisis of who we are and me being a an American first, a conservative second, a Republican third, I have talked for a long time about we tend to we collectively as you know Republicans. When yeah. there's a Republican in the White House, we tend to abandon these principles that we claim to espouse of small government and limited government and reducing spending and empowering individuals when it's you know us in charge. But then when we're not in charge, we all of a sudden revert back to this, you know, core principles idea. We have to be consistent. And so I think we need to figure out who we are as a body and what we're going to stand up for, because it's almost like whiplash. And I think that's what people got a taste of last week was this whiplash of, 
We talk yeah. about wanting to get to work. We talk about wanting to do these investigations. We talk about wanting to do this. But hold on one but second. Then, but then, but then, job A number one is you know fight amongst ourselves, Congresswoman. I got to take a break. Uh, next time when you come here, we'll have to talk about the actual agenda, which had to go on hold for a little while. But uh, I am yeah. out of time for now, and I really appreciate all the information. It's really, really interesting to hear and important to get the actual on the ground info. Congresswoman Kat Kamick, Florida's third district. Thanks, Congresswoman. I got to take a break. Be right back. <laughs> Thanks a lot to Zach Jones, who puts the show together for us and produces it, and Robert Marlowe, helps you pick topics, and to all of you who tell people about Breitbart.com, thanks for listening. Hey, hey.